Good Sabbath morning! We are delighted that you have decided to spend the wet and windy, cold Sabbath in California as we've actually had some wonderful, wonderful weather for those of us that like this little Pacific Northwest flavor. And if you're watching us in the Pacific Northwest, we understand why you are always in a good mood. We want to talk again today about this idea of offering and tithing. But before we do that, I want to invite you to just bow your head with me and pray as we talk about the tithing contract. God, thank you for your blessings, your care, your compassion for us. We just pray that you continue speaking to us. And as you speak to us, Father, we would pray that our hearts may fill and feel, that we may be full of the Spirit, and that we may feel your presence. We praise you and pray to you. In your name. Amen. Joey, how are you doing on this wonderful, wonderful Sabbath day? I'm cold, but um, otherwise I'm feeling good. <laughs> I didn't notice until until now that you and I are matching. We are matching, which is good. Joey and I are matching friends. <laughs> We've spent so much time together that without thinking, we call it we color coordinate. <laughs> it was bad to happen sometime. It ago. was. It was. Wow. Well, I'm I'm always. Um, proud of myself when I can even get close to your level of fashion. So, yes, I'm glad that I, I'm able to match you today. <laughs> you, are you are too kind. You are too kind. And I was going to ask you a difficult question, but I can't do it with the kindness that you have just shown me. So I'll just, um, I'll just open up with something really general. How about that? Sure. How did you find this week's lesson as we're talking about tithing contracts? It, it really was a fascinating lesson um, because in a way, and I don't want to read into what the, um, the writer of the, of the lesson was trying to do, but um, in a way, there, it is hard to um, strictly from what the Bible says um, make a complete support for the way that we do tithing mm -hmm. in the Adventist church. And that's not to say that it's wrong, the way that we tithe in the Adventist church is wrong, but it's just to say that the realities of today are very different than mm. the realities um, where tithe arose mm. from, right? And so in many ways, we've had to make some adjustments um, and base it on loose principles, and we are where we, we have landed. But then to go back and try to find biblical support for the way that we do tithing now, um, it's not an easy mm -hmm. proposition because, yes, there are definitely principles um, there. And, you know, the, the writer of the lesson did a great job of bringing out some of those principles. But on the other hand, 
we do tithing the way that we do within the Adventist church and, and other churches in, the way, in their churches because of more for practical reasons mm -hmm. than we do for strictly biblical practices mm -hmm. and following things the way exact way that they did it in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And yet, as I was kind of looking both at what the lesson was sharing and kind of some of the realities that you were alluding to, something really struck me. So there's a couple of studies that are done that look at faithfulness as it pertains to giving across mm. denominations. And I know we always are, are very aware of the idea that because of many different reasons, some of them uh, financial, some of them ideological, some of them practical, uh, we, we don't expect to have 100% giving within any of our congregations. Mm. And yet, the amount that is contributed uh, by Adventists is second among all of the denominations wow. that were researched. We only surpassed. So the amount of income and the percentage of income that Adventists gives, give is only surpassed, surpassed by our friends in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hmm. And so uh, it really struck me that even if it seems like as you're mentioning mm -hmm. the evidence at least scripturally for the way in which we tie this scant uh, some of those practical realities again that you allude to have created a culture of giving within Adventism that is really unique among the Protestant churches which I think is amazing and incredible and good um, I think faithfulness and giving to God I think generosity um, is they're all really mm -hmm. good things. So when I say these, when I say that there, um, there isn't um, direct correlations for how we do tithe um, now to what the biblical model was, doesn't mean that what we're doing is necessarily right. wrong. Um, I that's not what I'm saying at all. And I I do believe in tithe. I give tithe faithfully myself. And so um, this is something that I've taught my children. Mm. So these I I do believe that it is it is good that people tithe. Um, I'm just saying that it's not always easy to find a direct correlation right. to what we do and what they do. We don't do it exactly the same way right, that right, they right, did it. Right. But there are principles that carry yeah. over, which um, I'm hoping, I'm excited to discuss with you. Yeah. Because well, let's just jump into one of those differences that you're talking about, right? So the lesson talks about this idea of Levites and how a lot of the giving in ancient Israel was intended to provide for the Levites. Mm. And so uh, if you look at kind of the way in which it was constituted, a lot of the times uh, the gifts of the Israelites were not only to support the temple when there was a temple or the tabernacle or the tent, uh, or the religious institution, it was also used to support the priests and the Levites. Mm. And so the priests and Levites in ancient Israel were um, actually not required to contribute with, with their tithe because they had nothing to, nothing to give. That you mentioned, and I, I love the fact that you kind of introduced that because you are a faithful tithe giver. Uh, one of the things that we practice here at Loma Linda is it's not ethically responsible for us, for example, to ask our congregation to buy in uh, to contributing to our, our building plan without ourselves being stakeholders. And mm -hmm. so it, with us, it's less about the, the amount you give and more about the fact that we buy into this community 
even as ministers. And so that's just uh, one of those little differences. But I think your point is still salient in the sense that the principles that are in Scripture can be applied. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's very clear that that there was a practical reality that God was trying to address when he instituted the tithing system that he did for the nation of Israel when they first entered the land, right? Um, the nation of Israel, and this is what I found fascinating as I, as I was studying this, um, you know, the, the nation of Israel, each, each tribe got an inheritance. Mm-hmm. The t- tribe of Levi didn't. Did not. Because they, you know, every every tribe's inheritance was very firmly tied to land, mm-hmm. right? And we've talked about this with the covenant, Abrahamic covenant, how how um, strongly the covenant was tied to a land, a place, right? Um, but the Levites didn't really get a place. Mm-hmm. They got cities, but they weren't all gathered in one right, place. Right. They were scattered among all the tribes, right? 48 cities scattered around all the tribes. Um, I, I just saw this graphic online of how many cities were in each tribe. There was like, there's eight in the tribe of Judah, four in the tribe of Benjamin, four in Dan, four in Ephraim, um, two in each half tribe of Manasseh. And so generally around four in each tribe, except for um, in, except for in Judah, right, mm-hmm. where Jerusalem was. So you had, you had these cities and these cities um, served as dwelling places for the Levites. And it, you kind of wonder why... Why did God put these Levites in these, scatter them among all the Mm -hmm. different places? And there is a sense, and it's found very strongly in Deuteronomy chapter 12, one of the passages Mm -hmm. that that the study um, dwells upon, is this idea that that God was concerned about the purity and the unity of of practice, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, he talks about how um, there are other gods and there's other ways of worshiping found in this land that they are about to possess, right? And then in verse four, he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Mm. And instead, starting with verse five, he starts outlining the way that they are supposed to worship God. Instead of scattered, they're supposed to come to one place um, that all their tithes and offerings and and sacrifices and all supposed to be in one place, right? Um, and so it it seems like this passage is less about tithe as it is about this unity and purity of preserving a unity and purity of practice and not letting it be corrupted by the influences of the land that they were entering into. Mm. And it's, and this is just my conjecture, but it seems like the Levites had that role as well. And that's why God wanted them scattered throughout Mm. all the lands is that they were supposed to be the ones that hold everything together. I mean, imagine this is before the internet. This is before mm. communication could easily flow with cell phones or um, phones or even mail, right? They didn't have those kinds of systems. How do you continue to have a unity among a nation that's so scattered without a king, mm. without a ruling force, right? How do you do that? And it seems like the Levites were supposed to play those roles. And that's why they were scattered among all the peoples. And that's why God gives them as an inheritance, a very practical inheritance. Um, instead, since they don't have land, they are given this tithe to to live off of. So God, God, there definitely is a principle that seems to arise from that that God has used tithe in the past as a way of supporting 
his um, ministers and people who help help keep the community of faith together, right? Um, that there is there is a place for that. And so the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when we do that, when we give our tithes or return our tithes and offerings to God, um, use, utilizing those to um, as a, a way of supporting ministers and other workers within the church that help hold the whole church together does seem like a good use of those funds as one good use of those oh, funds. Oh, that's, that's, there's a lot to kind of ponder over what you've said. Um, I, yes, on, on all fronts, I want us to focus uh, on two things. You, you pushed us into Deuteronomy 12, which is a great passage. It's a passage that's talking about what Israel, as you're mentioning, is going to find as uh, they enter Canaan. And I think what you're, what you're teasing out is just the reality, the practical reality of the land that they're going to go and inhabit. And so here goes Israel. They move in, but they're different, right? They're different. Pre-monarchic pre Israel is different from any other of the other nations mm. because there is no central for, form of government. Yeah. Um, when Israel has uh, danger at the door, this kind of loose confederacy of tribes sends their uh, their quota of soldiers, and that's really the only links that they have, other than the religious connection that exists. That's why uh, centralized worship was so important, because that, as you're mentioning, is the only uh, way to unify Israel. And so you're talking about the Levites uh, as this group of people that is scattered throughout throughout the tribes, serving kind of as a reminder, right, that Israel is ultimately the Lord's. Now mm -hmm. we've got to think about what these Levites did. And so as you were reading, I was kind of thumbing through because. I had forgotten exactly what passage in Scripture it is, uh, but it's Numbers 8. So there is, I think, a very close connection with uh, the passage that you just mentioned and uh, this this little uh, section here in the book of Numbers, uh, verse uh, chapter 8, verses 5 uh, and on. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the Levites from among all the Israelites and make them ceremonially clean to purify, do this, sprinkle water, cleanse them, have them wash their clothes, um, and bring the Levites to the front of the tent of meeting. I'm going to jump to verse 9 just for time's sake. And assemble the whole Israeli community. You are to bring the Levites before the Lord, and the Israelites are to lay their hands on them. Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. Mm -hmm. This is this section sets up kind of this idea of Israel's offering system. So Israel begins to offer uh, burnt offerings and sin offerings, and then uh, Israel offers the firstborn offering, both of human beings, and we're not talking about uh, actual literal offerings, but uh, God is saying the firstborn, all the firstborns are mine. And so this idea is that just as in every household, the firstborn is an offering to the Lord or belongs to the Lord, just like every animal that you possess is um, a part or belongs to the Lord, just like the land and the grain 
is a part to the Lord. The Levites are intended mm. to serve as the offering out of all the 12 tribes as an offering to the Lord. And so this idea then connects to a little bit what you're saying here in chapter 12, which is the purpose of offering isn't simply to say, hey, we're keeping up with our end of the contract. The purpose of offering is an act of faith whereby we are saying we are we are wholly dependent on God. And the, these uh, cities in which the Levites dwelt were intended to be reminders mm -hmm. that even Israel uh, had this offering, this offering of people that was intended to remind the whole of the nation that their dependence was on God. And so tithing in that sense was less about a contractual responsibility mm. and more about an act of worship and faith. We wow. recognize that we are dependent on God, uh, both in our land, in our resources, in our animals, in our households. And the Levites were kind of the national uh, expression of dependency that Israel has. Oh, I love that. I love how you framed the uh, the the dedication of the Levites as an offering of a part of the people of God to God, right? And I love that because, like you said, tithes and offerings were never meant to be um, to say, okay, God, we give you a tenth, and that belongs to you, and the rest belongs mm -hmm. to us, and we can do whatever we want with That was never the intent of tithes and offerings. The, the intent, like you so clearly shared, the intent of tithes and offerings was to say, we, we return to God this tenth as a reminder that the whole thing belongs right. to God, right? And so if we frame, if we see the Levites in that way, the Levites themselves were a reminder to all the peoples that that all of them belonged wholly mm -hmm. to God, right? Of course, they all had different functions and the Levites had the most obvious and clear function of serving God. But the reality was it wasn't mm. only the Levites who served Correct. God. They were all to serve God as the people of God. And the, the Levites were just a reminder of who they were. And that's why wow. they had the Levites. And it's, it's really interesting because there is this idea both in uh, Deuteronomy 12 and in Numbers 8 of the tithe as a vow. I think that's why the, mm. the lesson chooses the word contract. But we need to understand contract, I think, in a different way. It's mm. less about, hey, where do you sign on the dotted line and more about this vow that you make to God. And so in the Levites case, it was a vow of dependence on God. That's why they... Uh, that's why they were their survival was contingent on Israel providing for them. In um, in the terms of the in terms of the actual burnt offering or the sin offering, it was uh, we are going to vow that we will give, as you're mentioning, mm -hmm. this piece back to you. And so again, it's less about us signing on the dotted line and more about us saying, "Hey, we are making these vows to God because to vow to God." is in itself an act of worship. And so I think you can translate, and you were talking about principles that we can apply, even though the mechanics are different. The principle that you can apply then is, what are we vowing of ourselves and of what we possess to God? Are we willing uh, to enter into some vows and uh, to, to make vows? as it were, has been part of Christian history for 2,000 years, right? You, may, you make a vow of chastity, or you make a vow of solitude, or you make a vow of silence. All of these things, it's not like 
you're not going to make God to please God, or you're not going to meet your uh, responsibility as a member of the community if you fail to keep these vows. Mm. It is primarily a reminder of your dependence on God. And so the question, mm. I think, and I, I love the lesson for kind of priding us in this direction, is that we need to recover this comfort with this idea of vows that we make to God and seeing our tithes and our offerings as a vow, mm. a vow of obedience, a vow of service, a vow of, de a vow of dependence. Yeah. So that vow, the, the way you're talking about it, it, it contains a lot more, uh, a stronger connotation of relationship mm -hmm. than a contract, right? Because um, a contract, it does establish a relationship, but it's a very transactional mm, relationship. Yeah. Whereas the vow has this more of a relational feel to it. And that's how you're saying we should view time. Wow. Yeah. I I, I didn't realize I was saying it so eloquently. So <laughs> you said it great. You, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what we mean, right? Yeah. So imagine if instead, and again, we're talking about these principles. Imagine instead uh, of your tithing and your offering being something that you check out. Mm. Imagine as you, if you were to start looking at it as a relational part, a relational piece, in your experience with God. Mm. I wonder if um, we would approach it differently. Yeah, definitely. That it, it's more about me trying to, um, it's, it's, I love how you said that tithing is an act of worship, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, at different stages of my life, I have viewed it very differently, right? right? Especially when I was younger, and this has something to do with you know, developmental stages. And, you know, as a child, I see it very much black mm -hmm. and white, like this is what I owe God, so I have to give God mm -hmm. this thing. As I've gotten older, I've leaned a lot more of tithe as an opportunity to worship God, mm -hmm. right? I love your, your focus on trust and dependence because um, tithe, if anything, is supposed to um, engender trust and dependence on God. And if it's not doing that, either because it's too easy or it's not doing it because it's so transactional that we expect, okay, God, I'm only going to give you this. If you if you get if you take care of me, you give me something back. Um, then then it fails to be that act of worship, and a lot of what tithe is kind of gets lost, mm. right? And I think because you view it as an act of worship, it ceases to be kind of linked to performance. Mm. And I don't just mean my performance. So you've heard this a lot, right? Well, I'm not going to tithe to uh, the organization because I have a problem with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a problem. Uh, let's take over the past 10 years, I have a problem with their stance on uh, female ordination, mm -hmm. on the ordination of uh, women. So I'm not going to tithe to the organization. Or on the other uh, side, um, I'm not going to tithe to the local conference because they are ordaining women pastors. So I'm going to not do that. I'm going to tithe uh, and, and I'm going to return my tithe only to uh, churches that uh, or institutions that agree with me. That's performance oriented. Mm -hmm. And that seems to break down the primary point that the, that the, le that the lesson and that scripture is trying to make, which is, you don't worry about how your tithe is being utilized mm -hmm. because that's not up to you. Mm -hmm. What I found so incredible 
was just looking at this concept of of tie of the contract of tithing was that during uh the ten uh, during the tenure of Hophni and Phineas as priests, uh, we're talking about Eli's sons, who used who used tithes tithes and offerings in all sorts of improper ways. There was never a command from God that told uh, the people stop tithing or <laughs> stop returning your your tithe to wow. the, to the to the tabernacle at Shiloh. The uh, there was a very clear uh, and actually brutal indictment that Yahweh makes on the priesthood and on Eli and Hophni and Phineas, but in no moment is that indictment extended to the people as far as hey mm. stop tithing or how about this uh, don't uh, don't tithe that there just because you know you had your you had your uh, local altars as well. Mm. You just didn't just have the altar at Shiloh. You had your local altars. And in no moment does Yahweh say, hey, stop returning it there because of what they're doing is uh, disagreeable. Uh, you need to start investing it over here. Uh, God is actually mm. seems to be saying, hey, how it's being managed is not really any of your concern. Your concern is... The worship piece. Wow. What you're saying is so hard because, you know, we live in a culture where we want to see right. behind, you know, we're, we don't want the Wizard of Oz back there mm -hmm. controlling things without us looking. Mm -hmm. But it does seem, your point seems to be made that we lose some of the benefit or some of the worshipful benefit of tithe when we are overly concerned with how it's being mm -hmm. used, right? That's not to say, though, that there isn't a responsibility of those who who manage God's mm -hmm. resources um, not to manage it well. But your example of Hophni Phineas seems to say, well, judging them and um, making sure that they're doing it well is God's responsibility and not ours. But that is a hard thing that you're saying, Miguel. Um, does that work in the society that we're, we're living in right now? I mean, because... I, I do get it. Um, I remember when I was a college student, I was taking OCHEM from um, a first-time professor, and um, he would he would do the um, the problems on the board. And uh, being a first-time professor, sometimes not because he didn't know his material, but just sometimes because he hadn't worked out um, the whole problem before, he would come out and it would be the wrong answer mm. on the board. And then he would say something like, well, you guys understand what I'm trying to get to. Okay, let's move on. And then he would move on. And it made me lose a lot of um, respect for him and just kind of tune him out. But I realized about halfway through the course that me not having respect for him and not listening to him was actually more detrimental mm -hmm. to me than it was to him. Because, because of my attitude, whether he was a great teacher or not, if I didn't take as much as I could get from him and listening to him, I was actually doing myself mm. a disservice. And it seems like in a similar way, you're saying that um, when we overly try to control our tithe and manipulate our tithe to make sure that it's going to the right places at the right times and all of those things, that we lose some of the worshipful, trust-dependent aspects of tithe, which is why God calls us mm. to give it. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And again, I think your point is well taken. We're not saying that there needs to be a lack of responsibility and transparency with how uh, God's resources are utilized. There absolutely does. But it's not my job to worry about that. Mm. Um, thankfully, uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I got from uh, from a, one of my mentors as I was coming up in ministry was the less you have to do with finances in the church, the better. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of, I've been lucky and blessed to have godly women and men serve as uh, treasurers or finance committee chairs in the different uh, churches where I've served, where my job wasn't to worry about that. It was uh, simply to do, to do uh, other aspects of ministry. Mm-hmm. But... I often heard throughout uh, my time, well, um, you as a pastor, because part of your salary is being covered through tithes, you really are working for me. And that always struck me and irked me. Um, And I didn't understand why, because on the surface, it's true. I, we serve at the pleasure of the churches that uh, that we work in. But there was something that didn't quite sit well with me. Mm-hmm. And it didn't sit well until this week as I was delving into the lesson. And I think it's connected to what you said uh, a while ago. And that is, look, tithe and offering, that's not my gift to God. Mm-hmm. That's my recognition that everything belongs to God. And when I say, hey, you as a pastor need to serve me because I'm paying you, Mm -hmm. or, hey, you as a church need to actually agree with my views and my ideologies, regardless of what that ideology is, because this is because I am contributing financially to that. You're operating from a framework that says, this is my money, and I'm giving it to you. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is, when you release that and you say, no, it belongs to God, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with the pastor. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with the polity in church. Because this isn't mine, this is God's. And Mm -hmm. if those resources are being mismanaged, or if the pastor isn't fulfilling his end of the bargain, that's for her or him to work out with God. It's it's that's not my purview anymore. Mm. Wow. So it really has to do with the attitude with which we approach Mm. tithe. Like if we're trying to use tithe. I can't, for a lack of a better term, as a way of manipulating the system, right. then it actually really destroys the purpose of tithe, of us giving tithe, mm-hmm. because that it was never about control. Tithe was never about control. It was actually about releasing control to God. And when we try to control too much, we actually lose the, mm-hmm. part of the reason for tithing. 
you know, on a personal level. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that, I mean, within our Seventh-day Adventist church, we have checks and balances. Right. We have means where we, we talk about these things, right? Representatives are sent to different mm -hmm. levels. There's executive committees of conferences and, and divisions and unions. And in those, we, we, can, we use those functions to talk about tithe and the proper use mm -hmm. of tithe. We have treasurers and, and others who are, who are finance committees and things like um, um, systems in place to ensure that tithe is being used in a, in a um, faithful mm -hmm. manner. But just because we disagree with those, those decisions doesn't mean that we should just then withhold tithe mm. because tithe was, again, not about manipulation and control. It's about letting go. But that's right. That's wow. beautifully said. And you asked the question, and I think it's a question that still is echoing in, in the air a bit. Does that work in our current context? Mm -hmm. And I would say no, if you think our current context is Western capitalistic society. <laughs> then no, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Because Western capitalistic society is built on supply and demand, right? The exchange of money for goods and services. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest way that we can define what, what capitalism is, right? The exchange of resources for goods and services. So when we give something, i.e. our tithe, we are expecting to get a service back. Mm. Now, there's nothing wrong with American Western capitalism. And there's nothing wrong with Adam Smith and his wealth of nations. But the Bible wasn't looking at Adam Smith and the wealth of nations when it was trying to determine its tithe and offering structure. Mm. It was less about goods and services and more about the recognition that God as a, the supreme ruler necessitated tribute. Mm -hmm. And so if you understand uh, a bit the relationship between a vassal and, the, and uh, the king to whom the vassal pays tribute, you kind of get in the, in the space where the Israelites lived, right? So uh, a vassal would contribute uh, tribute to uh, the king or the country that under which they were because they understood that the, everything that was possessed by them belonged in a very real sense to that king and that country. And that at any moment, the king and that country could come and say, well, you know what, you're out of here. It all belongs to me now. And so it was, it was a recognition. Mm -hmm. Tribute was a recognition of my status as uh, under you. I mm. subjugate myself to you. Now, the difference with Yahweh is Yahweh doesn't demand subjugation. He allows us to self-subjugate. Mm. And that's simply what the tithe and offering structure is intended to do. It's not only an act of worship. It's an act of self-subjugation. Mm. And the problem is self-subjugation requires quite a bit of, sur of not only surrender, but it also, it, it demands the capacity uh, for us to stop being haughty. Mm. And that, let's face it, in our current context is really difficult to do. Yeah. Which is why tithe is countercultural, mm -hmm. right? The way that you're framing, the way that we're talking about tithe today is is all about humility, letting go of control, 
um, subjugating, submission, surrender. These are not very popular terms in our day and age. And yet that is the basis of mm -hmm. tithe. And that's how tithe at its best in scripture is described, where it's less about transaction. God, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. Mm -hmm. And it's more about God, I trust you. So I'm going to let this go, knowing that all of this belongs to you. So now you, you, you talk about, I think, the closest link between what we have as Adventists and our structure, and it's not just Adventists, other denominations have the structure in a more congregationalist model, right? So when it comes to finances, um, and I, I think congregational models have uh, a lot to teach us, particularly about the freedom that we ought to afford congregations to define what is best in their own context, because who to understand the, con the contextual reality that you live in than the congregation that is indwelling in that reality. But when it comes to finances, scripture isn't congregational, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the tribe of Dan doesn't get to keep the resources in Dan, mm. they send them to Shiloh or to Jerusalem, depending uh, what yeah. era or epoch we're talking about. So what's the difference? Well, in a congregational model, uh, you have the resources, the vast majority of the resources stay within the, con the that congregation. And so some, some people ask why some of these pastors in megachurches uh, have these salaries that are exorbitant. And it's because you are operating under a congregational model. Now, I'm not here to say that a congregational model is wrong or right, but there's something that happens within, uh, within congregational uh, realities, and that is your congregation starts to become its own unique entity. And mm -hmm. again, while I think there are some real practical benefits to that, there, there does seem to be this disharmony or disunity. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, churches and, and structures like our own, where everything gets funneled, and um, this is, again, I have to preface this because I was uh, thinking last night, should I say this or should I not say it? And I'm going to say it, but I will preface it. There is a definite need, I think, from time to time for reformation mm -hmm. in any church. And that has to do with our theology, it has to do with our finance, it has to do with our ecclesiology and our structure. I think we, uh, and to, to quote that old adage from the Reformation, uh, the church reformed always reformed. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I think we need to look at these. But I think one of the things that does happen when you are sending uh, your tithes and offerings to these to this central location is that regardless of how much you differ theologically, uh, ecclesiologically, practic in your praxis, in your own expression of worship, there does seem it does seem to foster this unity that I think is powerful. Mm. Um, and so I think that you don't just have worship uh, tithe as an act of worship. A tithe is an act of self-subjugation. You also have tithes, tithe as a tool for unity in a world uh, that is really polarized. And that's something that you clearly see in Deuteronomy mm -hmm. chapter 12, you right? Do. This, that God utilized the Levites and the tithing system as a way of really unifying mm -hmm. the group. And that 
unified resources, like you said, was for the communal benefit, mm -hmm. which is why, as you talked about from Malachi 3 last, last week, um, that the blessings that come from giving, um, returning our tithes and offerings to God's storehouses are, um, are a way of blessing the entire community right. and not just an individual person. Just because I give God this tithe, I'm going to get this kind of mm -hmm. benefit back. It's not that kind of transaction. It's I return my tithes and offerings to God, and then God blesses the entire community. And that's even clear here in Deuteronomy 12, because it talks about how um, that, that, that it's not j just the Levites who benefit from this. It's also the the community mm -hmm. who benefits. They are also they also participate in the eating of the tithe communally, mm -hmm. right? The part of part of the uh, the use of the tithe was was the ceremonies that bless the entire community, and they get to eat together and 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 par participate that way. And then they also um, there is also um, a portion of the tithe every um, every third year. It would this it would go into the storehouses and then that would be used to benefit those on the margins mm -hmm. the 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 orphans the widows the foreigners they were to benefit from so the the use of tithe was like you said very communal it was not for the benefit of the person or the people who res who gave it as much as it is for the entire community and that is a, i think a powerful and not as emphasized portion of tithe, when we talk about tithe, um, we see it as a very personal thing between us and God. And if anybody else gets in the way of that, sometimes we feel like we should control tithe and manipulate tithe to make sure. Yeah. But what you seem to be saying is tithe is surrender and it's surrendering in a way that benefits the entire community mm -hmm. of God. That's exactly what we're saying. And yes, it's communal, but it's also intimate. And mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest paradox, right? Mm -hmm. um, th this... This beautiful image keeps kind of bursting in, in my mind. Um, you hear it in verse 7 of, of the chapter you're reading, Deuteronomy 12. It says, There in the presence of, your, of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord God has blessed you. Mm -hmm. And so as you're saying, there's this real sense of community as you're coming together and eating. Later... Uh, Later on, uh, in the great uh, Israel, uh, in the Josiah, in Josiah's reform, this this section of Deuteronomy is rediscovered. Mm. And what is beautiful about uh, that picture point painted in Nehemiah chapter eight is that we get a sense of what this actually looked like. Nehemiah goes and says, "Eat today the fatty part of of the cow, so uh, or of the calf." So if you if for those vegetarians, tune out for a moment because you're not going to understand. Uh, but if, if for those of you connoisseurs of eating uh, animals, the fat is where all the flavor is. It's the flavor-filled part of, of the animal. And so God is saying, hey, give this to me. But even that which you give me, I am going to allow you to participate in, and I'm going to give you the choicest cuts, mm. that which has and possesses the most flavor. Mm. And what I what I find fascinating about that mm. communal reality that you're talking to is God gives us back the best of, even of that 10%. So not only does God let us keep 90%, God, God gives us back or gives them back the choicest piece of that 10%, mm. right? And then... Uh, God says, share communally in mm -hmm. the presence of God. 
but there's nobody checking to make sure that you have contributed what you needed to contribute. There's no one policing tithe and offering. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout scripture, you have this idea that people come and give freely so much that um, at least in, in, in David's time and then when Moses is trying to build the, the tabernacle, you have people saying, hey, stop, don't give anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so and, so there's, it's, it's almost as if this deeply communal thing is also deeply intimate. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is intimate because it has to arise not from guilt, but from gratefulness. And I think that's one of the most beautiful pieces of viewing tithe in this way, that it is simply coming from a space of gratefulness. And maybe your life today isn't in a, in a you're not in a position to be grateful. And if that's your case, it seems to me that God would say, come and eat anyway, mm -hmm. have the choices parts, because we have made... Uh, the storehouses, as you mentioned, every three years, the storehouses are full and we have made provision for you. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Because there were definitely people who benefited from tithes mm -hmm. that didn't contribute to tithes, right. right? We just talked about the orphans, the widows, the foreigners who would not have given tithe, right? And yet uh, the passage that I was talking about is Deuteronomy chapter 14. Uh, verse 28, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may mm -hmm. bless you in all the work of your hands. Mm -hmm. So these people who had no part in giving, um, returning the tithes to God, um, because they didn't really have resources to give or they were outsiders from the community, they still benefited mm -hmm. from from that. And that really is, is, is what we are saying, that there's no policing and that just because you don't have to give in order to get. God is saying, I freely give. You should also, as my followers, freely give, even to those who may not be contributing to the community of faith at this time. Mm. And I love that that text. Thank you for for pulling us and pushing, prodding us to it. Uh, I hadn't read that uh, before. I love the fact that it says "eat and be satisfied." <laughs> right? There's there's this there's this idea of satis. It's not just survival anymore. Mm. And life for so many people that have lived on the face of the this earth has been a constant race to ensure survival. And it seems like the tithe portion in the tithe uh, structure was not created for your survival. It was formulated for your satisfaction. And I think if, if in this case, it is l your literal survival. Yeah. But I think we can, we can expand that analogy and say, if you're looking at tithe as the means for you, uh, for faith survival, don't contribute. Mm -hmm. um, if your offering is um, is your mechanism for uh, ethic, ethical survival, don't contribute. Mm -hmm. uh, because this isn't about survival. Mm -hmm. Survival has been assured because of what Jesus did. Mm. This is about satisfaction. Yeah. And so there there is a different tenor yeah. when you make that distinction. 
Um, so thank you for that, Joey. That's, this is a, it's a powerful reminder. Yeah, I love, and I love how you talk about tithe coming out of gratitude because that is really the way that it's framed in mm -hmm. scripture. Um, that's why it comes from your increase, right? Mm -hmm. God blesses us first and then out of God's blessing, we tithe, mm -hmm. right? It's not like, okay, we tithe and then we get God's right. blessing. God blesses us and we tithe out of the blessing that God has given to us, right? Um, and so I think that's, that is a powerful point that that God, again, like with salvation and everything else, God's action is first. Mm -hmm. Ours is a response to the blessing that God has given to us. And so really when we tithe, it's a recognition that regardless of what stage we are in right now, that we are blessed. Mm -hmm. There is a blessing. To see that blessing, to help us to see that blessing, we tithe. Because we can only tithe if we see the blessing that God has given. Mm -hmm. Because what else would we tithe out of, right? Right. And so then we, it's a recognition of the blessing that God has given mm -hmm. to us and the trust that God will continue to bless well, us in the future. Well, that's, I think, uh, a perfect place to segue into prayer, which is the way in which we, we faithfully believe that God will continue to journey with us. So, Joey, mm -hmm. can you pray for us? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you for taking the first step. You always take the first step, whether it's the step of creation or the step of salvation or the step of care. You always take that first step and then you invite us to step alongside you with these actions like tithe and Sabbath and, and service and these things that, that recognize with gratitude what you've already done and with trust what you will continue to do in the future. And so we ask that you give us the courage to step out alongside you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So may you step out in faith. May you step out in love. May you step out in mercy. May you step out in intimacy with God and in relationship with others as God continues to bless you beyond bottom lines and financial spreadsheets as he continues to bless you with salvation and grace. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.